All right, I want to thank Ian for preaching for me uh, last week. I do have one issue with what Ian was saying. Uh, there was a lot of shade being thrown last week towards left-handed people. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I will just say this and I'll leave it alone. Uh, one, I'm left-handed. And two, there is a reason that Ehud, who was the left-handed guy he was talking about, uh, led for 80 years peace in Israel, which is the longest of any judge in the book of Judges. It's, it's just there. You might as well take it, okay? Um, so today, we are in Judges chapter 4 and 5. Now, what's really interesting and unique about Judges chapter 4 and 5 uh, is not only the story uh, that we're going to see here, the historical narrative that we're entering into as we continue going through this just unique time uh, of the nation of Israel where, where Joshua has, has died and then the 12 tribes are essentially responsible uh, for finishing the work in the promised land. And we've been watching these compromises that they've been making along the way, not fully trusting God, uh, not fully removing people out of the land. And, and so there's just been this cycle uh, where uh, the nation of Israel starts to compromise, uh, enters into idolatry, uh, they become enslaved, and they cry out to the Lord. He sends a judge to come and rescue them, and then it just starts all over again. And, and so we're, we're in this unique time and space where there's not a king yet. And, and so there's a lot happening here, and we see these unique figures, these judges being raised up. And in chapters four and five, uh, we're going to focus on uh, a judge and then this really this, this hero as, as well. And what's refreshing and interesting about these two chapters is chapter four continues in this historical narrative, taking us and bringing us along uh, into the story. But then chapter five, it, it says it all, uh, it's essentially covering the same event, but it's written in poetic form. It's poetry. In other words, it's a song. Uh, and, and, and we call it Deborah and Barak's song. And as we look at chapter five, we're going to focus on chapter four, but I'm going to bring in chapter five because you're going to see how chapter five not only complements it, but uh, causes, us, causes us to see uh, a more accurate and rich picture of this uh, story. And so let's start in Judges chapter four, uh, verse one. Judges chapter four, verse one, it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who raised in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Egoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. He had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Okay, so uh, the nation of Israel had just come off uh, 80 years of, of peace, of rest, uh, which is the longest period of time uh, recorded in the book of, of Judges. But then with the death of that leader, the death of Ehud, the Israelites, we see once again uh, compromise, and it says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, they started turning to uh, the idols that they were surrounded by, the idolatry, and they started to take on the very character and nature of the people groups that were around them that they were to be different from. And so as they do this, what, you know, it's interesting how the very things we think are going to make us happy actually enslave us. 
And so uh, as they do this, they, God's like, okay, that's what you want. And it literally uses the picture of him selling them off. Like, that's what you want. That's what you're going to have. And so uh, they are literally under uh, the oppression of this king uh, of Canaan named Jabin. And it's interesting how he's the king of Canaan, but uh, we see the guy that gets the most press here is his general, his commander, who was incredibly wicked, named Sisera. And, and, and so as uh, the people of God, as they um, are oppressed, they're enslaved by these uh, people. And I'll describe it a little more in a minute. Uh, as they're experiencing this, they, they, cry out to the, they cry out to the Lord. And, and I think one of the things that we see as, once again, we're watching this reoccurring cycle is the nation of Israel was like the man in Jesus's parable who got rid of one demon, cleaned his house, and then ended up with seven worse demons. Now, some of you are very unfamiliar with that story, but Jesus would tell these stories, these parables, and, and, and he would essentially tell a story that connected with his audience, and it had a real world, a, a spiritual truth attached to it. And so I'm going to read that to you in Matthew chapter 12. These are Jesus's words. In verse 43, it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which uh, I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Uh, the, the man that he's alluding to is the nation of Israel. It, it, it's, it's, his, it's the people of God. The demons here are, are represented by idolatry. Okay, and, and, and what he's describing is uh, just like the nation of Israel cries out for help, just like you and I, we cry out for help. Look at my situation. Look at it. it I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. I can't handle it. So we cry out for help. And, 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 and so he helps us. And, and so literally we're like, man, uh, God caused all this to work out, right? He saved me. But here's the reality. You can be saved from whatever it was that was attacking you, that was against you, this person, this situation, this relationship. But here's the reality. You're going to be filled up by something. So what's emptied out is going to be refilled. And, and what I find oftentimes is many people will cry out to God to save them from something, to intercede in their life. But, but it's not for, it, it's, it's, it's not because they want uh, his cleansing work on their life. It's not because they're truly repentant. They just want to be saved from the situation they're in. And what we find with the nation of Israel, and this is what Jesus is talking about, is literally when that is removed out of your life, it creates a spiritual vacuum. And it's in that moment that we decide what is going to refill us. And it's either going to be the spirit of God and the transformation that only God can do in your life. Or guess what? It's going to be the very things that you prayed God would save you from. They're going to come back and it's going to be worse. And I think for many of us, that speaks truth, right? Because uh, we've, we've had this save me mentality and this save me relationship with God, but we haven't done anything to fill our lives up with who he is. And so it's an empty space. And you guys, empty spaces 
Oh, the enemy loves to occupy empty space in your life. He's always looking for those. And, and so we see that that's the situation with the nation of Israel. Uh, they cry out, save me, but there's no true transformation. There's not a desire to follow uh, God. Now, when we also uh, look at this, we see something very interesting uh, that we need to hear this morning. I know I needed to hear it. See, when we look at Jabin and, and the leader of Hazor and, and the Canaanites, Joshua, way back when, had already conquered them and burned Hazor to the ground. We're like, Joshua, yeah, yeah, right? Impressive guy. So that's already happened. So what happened? Why are they back? Well, they rebuilt that city. They rebuilt uh, the land. And what this shows us is if Israel had fully followed God the first time, Jabin, this king, and his army, they wouldn't have even been there. And I'm reminded of my father's words, do it right the first time. <laughs> do it right the first time. I want, I, want, I want us to think about that for a second. Trust God the first time. Follow God the first time. Take the step of faith the first time. Don't just ask for him to save you, but actually repent, actually turn to him the first time. Guys, how many of us, when we think of our lives right now, how many, how many things, how many, how many people, how many situations, how many conflicts are in our lives right now because we just failed to handle that situation, that person in a godly manner the first time? How many conflicts are unresolved and they're tormenting us mentally, emotionally, even physically? How many people do we avoid? How many uh, situations are out there and they're just hanging on to us, right? Because we've never actually dealt with it in a godly way the first time. And, and, and how many, like we think of uh, the addictions and all of these other things that, that are looking to take hold of our lives and derail us. And, and so often I know in my own life, I go, man, if I would have just done it God's way the first time. And so maybe for some of us, that's, that's what you need to hear today is, is, is to get things right and listen to them and respond fully this time. Uh, and so we read that, that Jabin, this king, he's got 900 iron chariots. Now, the reason it's highlighting that is because that's, um, that's war technology that nobody else has. So in those days, iron chariots, if you had iron chariots, you got control. I mean, that would just mow people down. And so he's got these 900 iron chariots. He's in control uh, of uh, the land. And, and this is oppression that is just getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, so bad that we actually read uh, in Judges chapter 5, so you can flip over, in Judges chapter 5, verse 6, uh, Deborah, Barak, in their song, uh, she says, in the days of Shangar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The highways were abandoned. People were afraid to travel. It says, and travelers kept to the bylaw, to the byways. It says, the villages ceased in Israel. No one would go into the villages because they were afraid, right? Uh, they were enslaved. All these things would happen. They would get taken. And so they're trying to just uh, hang out behind these walls. It says, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. 
So it shows us the symptom, the problem. Uh, and and this, is, this is getting worse and worse, and it's been cruel, it says, for 20 years. 20 years they've been dealing with this. Um, once again, we see the people cry out to God. It's not to forgive their sins, but to relieve their suffering. And you guys, I, I just find more and more people are, are just in that camp. God, fix my situation. Heal me. Take this away and all of that. But guys, when our motives are just God serve me, fix me, fix my life, my situation, and it's not repentant, I want you to think how selfish that really is. And that's where the nation of Israel is at in their relationship with God. God, you exist to serve me. God, you need to come through for me. We've wanted nothing to do with you. Uh, we've, you know, in fact, we've worshiped these other gods, but God, now we're in real need. So we're, we're crying out to you. So do your part. And, and what we see is, is really Israel needed the heart of David, didn't they? Uh, they needed the prayer that David prays in Psalm uh, 5110. I absolutely love this prayer. And I would encourage you to start praying it regularly. In Psalm 5110, David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I want you to think if that was something that, that you and I were frequently praying to the Lord. Uh, God, I pray that, I, you know, my situation's a mess. Uh, life's rough. But I just pray, God, that you would create in me a clean heart. And that you would get my spirit right before you. That it would be in alignment, God. I, I, I pray for that. And that's what the nation of Israel is missing here. And so in chapter 4, verse 4, we continue. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his servants and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Okay, so God in his grace, hears the cries of the people and he raises up this courageous woman named Deborah. And he raises her up to be uh, the judge of Israel. In fact, chapter five, verse seven, uh, it talks about how she arose as a mother to the nation of Israel. Now, what do we read about this judge? Uh, she's very unique, right? Uh, not only because she was uh, a woman here, but, but she was both a judge and a prophetess. Uh, we read that Moses' sister was a prophetess. We read uh, multiple other prophets that were, uh, that were females later on in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we see uh, the same thing carry on, where, where Philip, four of his daughters uh, were uh, prophets. Now, if you're a young girl in this room, don't go home and be like, hey, you need to listen, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you heard what he said, I, I you know, um, <laughs> But what, what essentially was uh, she doing? She was preaching and teaching the word of God to the people. And that's what she's doing there in verse six. And not only that, it, she's leading Israel. Like she's, she's holding court. Like there's literally a place, uh, a courtroom essentially where the Israelites came to her to settle social, legal, and relational disputes. Okay, and, and so 
What we see what's really unique about Deborah is she led from wisdom and character rather than just pure might. We see that she was married. And, and I think one of the things that, that is just really important for us to see here um, is uh, that, that whole narrative that I've heard that uh, the Bible belittles women or is anti-women. I'm like, you've never read the Bible. Like, I'm like, you just have it. Well, no, I read this one line. You read a line. You built a theology off of a line. Whew, wait till you read some of the lines we're about to read later on. You better not build your theology off of that. That's historical narrative. That's not, hey, do this. Uh, you know, don't drive a tent stake through someone's head. Like, I mean, come on. And, and so that's what we're going to read. And so anyway, what we see, you guys, is all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, we see uh, the value of men and women. We, we see them looked at, treated as equally, and yet they're different. And the differences aren't a negative, right? The differences are a gift. The differences are a calling. And, 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 and so we see, and it's beautiful. And so uh, we, and we, see, uh, we see female uh, leaders being raised up. We see uh, them speaking on behalf of God. Uh, we see the people responding. And, and, and all of these things we see. And guys, this church here right now is like full of incredible women. <laughs> and... My wife's at this gathering, right? And so, uh, anyway, I didn't say it at the 8.30. So, I'm just kidding, I did. But anyway, at the, so it's full of incredible women leaders making a difference that God has gifted. This church is less than without you. And, and, and so, uh, we see all throughout Scripture, we see, we see that, all right? And, and so, this is... This historical narrative about uh, just women as a whole, I just, I go, what in the world? Like, this is ridiculous. And, and so what we need to see is uh, that there is a place in a space where we have to guard our hearts from building an overall theological view off of like, like this. Because I'll tell you right now, you can take this that we just read and you can go two different directions. Right, I could, I could sit here and go, and I could take it in one direction and go, okay, but she's the only one. And the only reason she's leading is because none of the men stepped up. So God's like, fine. So that's why. If I was there, I would have So that's one way that people will take it. Uh, <laughs> the other way uh, people will take it is, all right, so she did that. So women, we'll just ignore everything that Paul said in the New Testament when he talked about uh, governance and, and, and church, right? We just erase it because look at Deborah, right? And, and, and it's not like Paul speaks anything down towards women. It's just lines have been taken out of context. But still, he does give prescription for how the church should operate. And so the only differences that we really see when it comes to, uh, like in the Old Testament, we see uh, men were chosen as priests from the line of Aaron. And then we see eldership in the New Testament. We see that same uh, uh, kind of distinction there. But you guys, outside of that, we see uh, God's love, the elevation of women in, in Scripture. We see how Jesus treated women totally different, valued, Okay. Um, and so she is this phenomenal leader uh, here. And, and what we uh, see is she what? She calls to Barak. She calls to Barak and, and she says, listen, you are to gather and lead the Israelites' army. And your, your role is to draw Sisera's troops into this trap near Mount Tabor where the Lord is going to defeat them. 
Now, Mount Tabor, uh, geographically, is close to the Kishon River. And so if Barak will lead the people, if he'll, by faith, go there to what many would say, that's certain death, then God would draw out Sisera and his troops, and God would give them victory. You guys, God's plans are always perfect. They just are. God has the person already picked. He's got the situation. He's got the battlefield. He's got the enemy. He, he, he's got every piece where it needs uh, to be. And, and so, you guys, whatever he's going to call you to do in your life, he's already enabled you to accomplish it. He's already gone before you. You just have to be obedient and walk in it. So then in verse 8, we read this. It says, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Okay, so we're introduced uh, to, to, to Barak, essentially. He's from uh, the Naphtali uh, tribe. And his response uh, to, uh, to Deborah and Deborah's reply to him has been taken in two very different ways. Okay? And, and one is a pessimistic way and one is an optimistic way. All right? The, so let's start with the negative, right? The, the, pessimistic, the pessimistic view here is, is, is looking at this and going, Barak is asking Deborah to go with him because if she doesn't, he can't do it. In other words, he's got a lack of faith. Okay, and this, this kind of plays into how the NIV translates uh, this. And so this, would, this view would say that Deborah agrees to go with him um, and, and then says, but because of the way you are refusing to simply trust and obey God, the honor will not be yours, right? The, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to uh, a, whim, a woman. And so what is happening here is it's saying that, that Barak uh, is being punished. The honor's being taken from him because he didn't have that initial faith. Okay, so that is uh, one view. And then with that view, he's not honored until verse 14 when he actually leads his army uh, into uh, battle, okay? Um, and so that view is the honor is being withheld as a rebuke for his lack of obedient faith. Now, the more opt uh, optimistic view, uh, it rests on the fact that Hebrews, uh, that in the Hebrew, in verse 9, it can be translated as, on the expedition you are undertaking, the honor will not be yours. And so, this view is that Deborah's not rebuking Barak for a lack of faith. She's just simply telling him that though he's going to have to charge down the hill directly into the 900 chariots, he's not going to get the honor for it. It's a prophetic state of fact, not a verdict on his lack of faith. And so on this reading, Barak is a hero, an example of faith, not only in verse 14, but through out. And so his desire to take Deborah with him is not disobedience from this point of view, but done out of recognition that Deborah is a godly woman who speaks God's word. In other words, why wouldn't you want the mouthpiece of God to be with you? Right? Uh, makes sense to me. And so um, we see people pull that in two different uh, ways. All right? And, and so 
What we need to see here, though, is either way there, Barak is going to find himself in a position where he's going to have to lead this army against insurmountable odds. And he's told what? You're not going to get the credit for it. The honor is not going to be yours. And you guys, I think one of the things that, that we need to be reminded of is uh, I think, I think we're, we're very quick to serve, volunteer, do what God's asking us to do if we're going to be acknowledged or get the credit for it. But when God is calling us to do something by faith, he wants us to do that uh, in a humble way. In other words, not counting on the fact that you're going to be even acknowledged, right? And, and so we see that Barak uh, is, is literally uh, acting in this incredible, humble way by going, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to do it for the Lord, and I know I'm not going to get the credit, but I will still do that. And so Barak enlisted 10,000 men from his own tribe and then the neighboring tribe of Zebulun. And then chapter 5, verse 13, it talks about this little process as they're recruiting. Uh, it says, Then down marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From the Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makur marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Ishakar came with Deborah, and Ishakar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds? To hear the whistling for the flocks. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, stained by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Nephtali too, on the heights of the field. Okay, so I know that's tough and the names are, are difficult to translate and, and all that or pronunciate. But we see that volunteers from the tribes of Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh West, and Ishakar joined these men, and the army grows. Deborah, we, we read in chapter 5, is just grateful for, grateful for the people who offered themselves in the service of the Lord and to the nobles for helping to recruit uh, for this cause. But we also read here that there's four tribes that didn't volunteer to do their fair share of the fighting. We see, and, and we really need to see this. That's why I highlighted it. It's a section I think we would tend to avoid. It says the tribe of Reuben, it, they pondered the call to arms. They pondered it. They thought about it. They prayed about it, right? But they ended up staying home. We see that uh, Gilead was safe on the other side of the Jordan. So like, we're, we're safe. We're good. So they stayed home. Dan and Asher, they're on the coast. And so they also elected not to heed the call to battle. There's even a, a town uh, named Miraz in chapter five that, 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 that's cursed by the angel of the Lord for, not, for refusing to help the Lord in this incredible work. And, and then they're all contrasted, right? With uh, the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali who are praised for risking their lives. And, and when I look at this, you guys, uh, just like the people of Israel, 
when it comes to God's call for our lives, uh, for service towards him to a step of faith, we respond just like them. Some of us, I mean, it's, it's, it's like right away. It's like God calls you to a step of faith. You're like, God, this is too big for me. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can manage it. I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know if I can fund it. God, I don't know how you're going to pull this off, but God, I know who you are. And so I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to step out into this space, right? Some of us are like that. It's incredible to watch. But then there's others of us, right, who uh, find ourselves uh, in a different response, right? Like, like we're the ones who uh, we're, we're like, well, let me consider that. Let me think about that. I got to pray. Right, honey? We'll pray about this. Now, that's not bad, okay? But you know what I'm talking about. And, and so some of us will ponder it, think about it, and at the end of the day, it's too much. It's too high of a cost. I like where I'm at. Things are okay. Let's keep things the same. And then... There's some of us who just keep going on and we act like God hasn't been calling us. We pretend that the calling isn't even real. We literally write off all of those moments where God has just said, I'm real, I'm real, I love you. I sent Jesus, my one and only son, to the cross for your sins. That's how much I love you. And, and, and you sat through Easter gatherings, Christmas Eve, and all kinds of other things. And, 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 and there's been moments where, where you hear that call, or maybe it's a call to step out in ministry, to pursue something, to do something that he's called on your life. And, 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 and you, just, you just, no, no, no. And you're so used to saying no that you're just conditioned to it. And so you are at this point where you deny that he's even calling and speaking to you anymore. And guys, here's what I found to be true. And I found this to be true outside of the church where people want nothing to do with God. And I found this to be true with people inside uh, the church as well. I, I would almost call this a universal truth. People usually respond either out here or in the church. They respond when it has a clear benefit to them, right? Now, let me just bring that home a little bit. Like, when, I'm, when I want nothing to do with God, all of a sudden, I want something to do with God when I need him to save me, when I need him to help me get out of this relationship, when I need him to get me out of this addiction, when I need uh, his help uh, with this boss, with this work situation. Now, hey, God, Right now, now I'm now we're talking, right? So, so there's, there's, but, but what is that motivated by? Me. And then in the church, I see it all the time, right? Like, um, you know, we're called to serve. There's opportunities. There's these outreach ministries, like VBS this last week and all this. And, and, and here's kind of how we typically respond. My kid's not that age. I'm not in that situation anymore. I don't need help with that. I'm glad I'm beyond that. And we're not even, we're not even asking, God, what are you 
challenging me to do with this church? God, what, what have you called me to do? God, what, what have you placed on my heart? God, what, what, and, and here's what's crazy about this is uh, we, most of the time, what do we do when we, when we go to church? We're like, how, like, I want to invest in the ways that help my family, right? You know, if it's my kids involved, I'm there, right? Um, if, if it's, you know, if it's middle school, I don't have a middle schooler, good luck. You know, if it's, if it's high school, if, it, if it's college, oh, I love seeing college students want nothing to do with it. I look, you know, and, 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 and we, we do this. We compartmentalize that based upon ultimately me. Until what? Until you're the one in need. Until something in your life just rocks you and shakes you and, 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 and it's beyond your ability to handle or control, right? And then, and then you're like, is there a ministry for this? Right? Now all of a sudden your kid is in this age or your kid is battling this and you're like, what do you have for that? Right? And, and, and yet we're, we're, we're like, we're once again operating off of, I need you to, I need God, I need this situation to benefit me. Now guys, I want to be very clear. This church is not trying to be a country club down the road. This church is a hospital. And so we want as many broken people to come through these doors and experience uh, the saving faith and hope that only Jesus can bring. So don't miss that in, the, in what I'm trying to say. I think you can understand the difference, right? There is a difference between desperation before the Lord and I just need this for me. And, and, and so, you guys, I want to I wanna encourage us to think beyond that because I just believe that God, there's so much more that he wants to do with this church than we're doing even right now, but it's going to take you, who he's been speaking to, talking to, nudging, it's going to be, it's going to come down to you saying yes. And, and so I, I pray for that. How will I respond when I don't see how it personally benefits me? And you guys, when, when you think of this situation, the lack of weapons, the lack of participation, uh, the lack of an effective, even army. I mean, they've been enslaved. They've been building up this incredible force, right? Uh, we see that what, Dar what Deborah and Barak did was an incredible act of faith. Incredible act of faith. They just literally held on to the promise that God would give them victory and they held true to his words. And then we read this in chapter four, verse 11, and we'll finish out that chapter. It says, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanunim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Higiam to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth, Higium, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, 
Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly. I don't know why it says softly, but she went soft. There's nothing soft about this to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And all the middle schoolers and high schools just suddenly woke up, right? <laughs> and it says, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went uh, to, into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Uh, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. That is historical narrative. I don't know how to cut it up for you. There it is, right? And, and so what, what do we see? There's 10,000 men ready to fight. I mean, Barak is like, all right, Lord, we're here. We're standing. I mean, you got to do this. And, and he's done his part, right? They're there. Deborah, he's listened. Deborah is there with him. And, and, and so Sisera, he hears what's going on. What we read from chapter five is he's actually created this alliance with the other kings there. He's got a massive army forming and now they're headed to just wipe Barak and them out. And so he goes right there uh, to this, this, this field, this area, right? Uh, right along the Kishon River. Now, what were they depending on, right? Those iron chariots. We got those 900 chariots. And so they go to meet them into this plain. And what happens, right? What they didn't know was that the Lord was going to send a fierce rainstorm. And that would make the Kishon River overflow and turn the entire battlefield into mud. And that's what we read in chapter 5 verses 20 through 22. Uh, it tells us how God responds, right? It says in verse 20, from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent kitchen swept them away. Okay, so, I, I mean, I want you to just think about this. So Barak, I mean, they're riding in and it's almost like eyes closed, right? Like, God, you gotta do this. Those are iron, we don't have that. That's next level tech. And, and God, all of a sudden, torrential downpour. The water rises. It overflows. And the battlefield is all mud. It's being swept away, making chariots, whatever they're made out of, absolutely useless. And the people of Israel easily win this victory. And guys, here is... What's so beautiful? I don't know if you caught verse 15 as I was reading all of that to you, but it said what? And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword. The Lord routed that army. That was the Lord's work. You guys, the victory is always the Lord's. Amen? Like it's always his. Always. Uh, you know, when, in a minute, when we when we celebrate baptisms, you guys, that is the victory that only Jesus can bring in people's lives. So when we clap and celebrate, we're not, we're not celebrating anybody other than God. 
and what God has done. And, and, and that's what Deborah does in this victory song with Barak in chapter five. They're just giving credit to the Lord. And, and, and we read that what? While Barak and his men were pursuing and killing the fleeing Canaanites, that Canaanite captain, Sisera, he's, he goes uh, to a place that he believes is safe, right? Uh, because uh, Heber is at peace uh, with Jabin the king. And so he goes to this tent and there's this awesome lady who's like, He's brutal, but awesome. And, and she invites him in and she's promising, I'm gonna take care of you, all this. And, and she does all those things, water, that, and then takes him out. Game over. And in Eastern nomadic tribes, the women would set up and tear down the tent. So she knew what she was doing with that hammer. But Barak passes this tent, jail comes and she goes, I, I got him. I got the guy you're looking for. Now, Here's what I want to be careful with, because sometimes we read that and we go, we go, well, I'm conflicted because she just broke two of the Ten Commandments, right? She clearly lied and she killed, <laughs> you know? And, and so what do we do with that? How do I process that and, uh, and, and, and reconcile that? You guys, God is capable of using absolutely anybody to accomplish his purposes. So when, when we read this, it's historical narrative. It's telling us what what happened. It's not endorsing that. It's not endorsing a lie. It's not endorsing, hey, secretly, you know, killed. Like, it's not endorsing that at all. What we see is a picture of how God can use that and actually turn it even for his good, for his perfect will to be accomplished. Okay. And that's why Deborah in chapter five is able to, is to literally say a blessing on what God did through JL. And so we've got to remember that. And God's doing that today. Isn't he? How many situations are you seeing? And you're like, and it's like, man, God, you just did that. And you did that through that person, right? And so what we see, you guys, is not an endorsement here, but we see what God can do. And we see that then Jabin, the king, is pursued. He is destroyed. And then towards the end of chapter five, uh, there is, towards the end of this song, a really interesting scene where in verse 28, it says, out of the window, and, and, and Deborah is singing, and she says, out of, the, out of the window, she appeared. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? And, and it continues on there, because we don't have time, because I've talked too long. But what it continues and, 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 and describes to us is the picture of pathetic hope. Sisera, this evil, wicked, who did unspeakable acts to people, to women, his mom, it's this image of his mom waiting and assuming he's coming back because he always wins. And, and it has the other, the other ladies waiting as well for Sisera, talking about how he's probably dealing with the spoils of war and all of this, and they're just waiting for him to return. And it just shows us in, in graphic detail the hopelessness uh, that, uh, that, that, care, that comes with us placing our hope in things that will never fully deliver for you. And we're just like them, aren't we? We're like waiting, we're watching. If that happens, if this job happens, if that number is hit, all of these things, if my kid does that, if, if, if she says yes, if he said all these things, right? And we're, and we're looking for it. And Jesus is like, listen, that has never, it's never worked before and it's not gonna work for you. Only I can fulfill you. Only I can bring you ultimate victory in your life and it will supersede your circumstances. You don't have to keep waiting at that window. You just have to receive me. 
Sisera was not going to ever come home. In the closing prayer, it contrasts the enemies of the Lord, like Sisera, who go out in darkness, and the people of God, who are like the noonday sun. And we see joy. We see from chapter 5, Deborah and Barak calling all the wealthy people, everybody to come out of the walled areas. And once again, they're singing at the wells. They're singing on the streets. And we read in 531 that there was peace for 40 years. See, this morning, we all find ourselves at different places, don't we? Some of us are looking out the window, waiting for something to pay off, to provide satisfaction. And ultimately, it's outside of God. And what you need to hear this morning is it's not going to deliver. It's just not. There's story after story. It's not going to deliver. It hasn't come. And Jesus is saying it's not going to come outside of a relationship with him. Okay, some of us this morning, we find ourselves and, and we're, we're hearing the call of God on our lives. And he's pulling us, he's nudging us, he's pushing us, but we're safe. We're safe where we're at. We're comfortable. Life is good. It's manageable. It's dependable. It's consistent. He's like, no. Maybe we're afraid of what that could mean. There's fear attached to it. Or, or maybe for some of us, we have just been so hard-hearted for so long. We've heard the best sermons, uh, the, the best altar calls, all of these things. And, and, and there's been moments we, we went, uh, maybe, and then no. And, and so after saying no so many times, it's just a no now. And we don't even open a crack uh, for, for God to work, to penetrate our hearts. And maybe, just maybe today, he's like, you need to open that door for the first time. Give me full access. And you guys, what we see repeated in the book of Judges over and over again is it just takes one person to trust God, Right? One person that will stand up, that will trust God. And often, who is it? It's some of the most unlikely people. Are you that person? I know I was. Has has your relationship with him just been saved me? Or has there been heart change? See, we, what we do with what we believe is the proof of what we believe. And so I'm going to invite you into that, to act out what God is calling you to and to respond. If you'll just bow your heads and close your eyes with me.